Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, the Canadian government lines up a plane to evacuate 160 Canadians from China and the coronavirus outbreak. Now it has to work out the diplomatic rules with China before an airlift can begin, as critics question the speed of the Canadian response. The U.S. President signs the new NAFTA into law as the ratification process moves to the next phase in this country. An expert panel is recommending a major overhaul of Canada's broadcasting and telecommunications laws, including rules to force internet streaming companies such as Netflix to invest in Canadian programming and to charge sales tax. And a Conservative leadership race has its first candidate from Western Canada. Alberta businessman Rick Peterson is making another run at the top Tory job. I'll ask him why. We'll begin tonight with the latest developments in Canada's response to the coronavirus outbreak in China. The Canadian government now says it has secured a plane to collect 160 Canadians in China who say they want help to get back home from the lockdown areas affected by the coronavirus outbreak. But now there's a challenge in getting the plane into China and the need to get the diplomatic okay from the Chinese. Planes from the U.S. and Japan have already evacuated some of their citizens from China. More than 6,000 cases of the virus have now been confirmed globally and more than 130 deaths. The government has also advised against all non-essential travel to mainland China. That's led Air Canada to suspend its flights to Beijing and Shanghai. And Canada has cut back on the number of consular staff in China because of the outbreak. This afternoon, Canada's Ministers of Foreign Affairs and Health provided another update on efforts to get those Canadians home and what might happen when they arrive back on Canadian soil. Part of the process now is figuring out exactly what our protocols will be when we return Canadians that wish to come home. And we're working very closely with our U.S. counterparts, who obviously have some experience in this and have uh, set up some best practices. And we'll be following their lead very closely. Um, and we'll have more to say as we as those processes unfold. The World Health Organization. Cette conférence de presse-là, je les ai informés des actions que nous allions entreprendre. Je viens juste de terminer aussi un appel avec le secrétaire aux affaires étrangères du Royaume-Uni. Alors, je peux vous dire qu'on est vraiment coordonné. J'ai placé un appel avec la ministre du Québec, la ministre des Relations internationales, pour l'informer des mesures que nous allions prendre pour rapatrier les Canadiens et les Canadiennes qui voudraient revenir. Organization today uh, issued some advice to countries that are indeed evacuating citizens from China. Um, what can you specifically draw from the advice given today from the World Health Organization in terms of what Canada's plan needs to look like? Well, I have not seen that specific evidence, and I'm happy to come back once I've reviewed it. I'm uh, also very comforted by the fact that Dr. Tam is, as I mentioned, an expert advisor to the World Health Organization. They will be having a meeting tomorrow, and we'll have more to say at that point. Oui, oui. Il n'y a, a pas d'inquiétude pour les Canadiens et les Canadiennes à avoir. Je suis en contact avec l'ambassadeur Barton à tous les jours. On a les équipes nécessaires sur le terrain. 
pour offrir tous les services consulaires. Comme je vous dis, évidemment, il faut que les gens qui nous regardent à la maison comprennent que c'est une situation qui est dynamique. Ça change évidemment d'heure en heure. Maintenant, je l'ai dit, on a 160 Canadiens et Canadiennes qui nous ont demandé évidemment euh, de l'assistance consulaire. On est en contact avec eux. Et là, la partie qu'on doit faire, c'est toute la partie logistique, la partie diplomatique, évidemment, euh, avec les autorités chinoises. Est-ce que vous avez l'avion pourrait partir, M. Champagne? Écoutez, ce qu'on est en train de faire, ce que je peux vous dire, puis on va revenir, la ministre et moi, devant les Canadiens et Canadiennes à chaque fois qu'on a des nouvelles. Ce que je peux vous dire, c'est qu'hier, on a sécurisé un appareil pour rapatrier les Canadiens et les Canadiennes qui voudraient revenir. Maintenant, comme dans le cas de tous les autres pays, une fois qu'on a sécurisé un appareil, il faut ensuite travailler de façon diplomatique pour obtenir les permissions nécessaires pour faire atterrir l'appareil. Et deuxièmement, organiser toute la logistique parce que les gens comprennent que cette partie-là, cette ville-là, évidemment, les, la circulation est réduite, la circulation est contrôlée. Donc là, on travaille avec les autorités chinoises pour assurer la logistique pour justement faire ça, puis on va vous tenir au courant. In English. So what I was saying, and then we'll go to you. So what I was saying is just that once you have secured an airplane, which what we did yesterday, and I was in touch even with the CEO of the company, so the plane is secured. Now that's step one. After that, obviously in parallel to that, we need to work with the Chinese authorities with respect to the authorizations you need to bring the plane, obviously in China, but also work on the logistics. Canadians understand, and once you have a plane that you could repatriate Canadians, those who wish to be repatriated, then we need to work on the logistics, because as you know, the city is on lockdown. So we are talking, I just finished a call with the uh, Minister of International Relations of Quebec. I just literally finished a call with Secretary Rab of the United Kingdom. We are all coordinating. We are all talking to each other to make sure that, as Minister Aydou said, we learn from best practices. We are coordinating. And we'll come back to you as soon as we have more to say with respect to the next steps. What, now we're the, working of, together. Of the, okay. 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 Of the 160 Canadians that have asked to be repatriated, do we know if any of them are sick? Uh, I cannot answer that question right now, but we will ensure because, as I told you yesterday, we are in touch with them. We are asking these questions, but there will be a process as we're looking at repatriation. There will be a process, obviously, which has been applied by other countries as well. So as more, the, when we have more on that, we'll certainly come back to you. What's the company? What's the company? What's the company? You said that. Well, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a charter airline. Let's say it's a charter airline. It's not going to be a military aircraft. It's a charter airline specializing on repatriation. Are you looking at scenarios where, they would, where you would be putting these 160 Canadians uh, into, say, a military base or something like that? To so that the first and foremost thing to remember is that we will always work to ensure the health of Canadians, whether they're abroad or whether they're here. So. Yes, what we're looking at is a scenario where we have all the measures in place to protect Canadians um, from exposure to the virus. And having said that, that's about as far as I can go, because we know that, for example, the U.S. has a process that's working very efficiently um, and that is working uh, in, in a very similar way that we're working on the virus in our domestic approach. So we'll come back to you with the steps as we as we develop them further. But, but you, among, among, the, among the options, you're saying you're looking at military bases. Are you also looking at just sending these people home and letting them deal with it on their own? And then I have another question, because I don't know if I'll get my turn again. Um, <laughs> yesterday, you couldn't really answer um, whether people who are already sick in China would be allowed to board the plane back. Have you right. figured that part out? And then, Mr. Champagne, is this a question of or of the day, the repatriation? 
So, so in terms of the questions around uh, the processes, I am, I will not speculate at this point what exact process will be in place, other than to say that the goals of the process will be to protect the health of Canadians, both here in Canada and the health of Canadians who are returning. Uh, in terms of your second question, um, you know, will people be allowed to come back if they're sick? These are the conversations that we're having with our partners, including China, to determine how, in fact, people are allowed to board and what the processes are. Uh, obviously, some people may be engaged with the medical system, and that's the hard work that Minister Champagne and his team are doing to determine what support people need. Let's remember that not everybody in China that's on the list of people that would like support want to come back to Canada. In fact, as I said yesterday, some of the concern is around supplies that they might be running out, uh, challenges moving around the region, being separated from families that might be in another part of the region. And so Minister Champagne's team is doing a, a thorough job trying to understand the numbers of people that want to come back, as well as what other kinds of ways we can support Canadians in a very difficult situation where mobility has been essentially cut off from other parts of the country. So, votre question, c'était sur le nombre de jours que ça peut prendre. Écoutez, je peux juste regarder ce que ça a pris dans le cas de d'autres pays. On parle de plusieurs jours que les autres pays ont dû évidemment euh, prendre pour assurer la logistique et les autorisations. Donc, euh, je peux vous dire, c'est le temps que ça a pris. Évidemment, on est en contact avec euh, les autorités chinoises euh, sur, évidemment, obtenir les autorisations diplomatiques, mais aussi toute la logistique. So, in English, uh, the question was about uh, how many days, and the only thing I can say to Canadians, I can reflect on how many days it took for the U.S. and for the others who had plane landing there. It, it took a number of days because you need to work out on the diplomatic side, you need to work out on the logistics side. But what we're going to be making sure in the meantime, and Minister Aydou said it very eloquently, we're going to provide all the consular assistance to the people. We're keeping them updated. We're talking to them almost on a daily basis. So we will inform you, inform Canadians, and from those who have requested consular assistance. Who is, who is, who is so who is much gonna... longer than other countries to get to this Well, point. I would disagree with you because so I, was in touch. Well, so I, would, I was in touch with all the others, sir, and I will tell you, Canada, is at the forefront of the response. We are talking with the allies. The only plane which has landed is a U.S. plane which was scheduled to be there. The other one is Japan this morning. I've talked to my counterparts. We're in touch with everyone. And I can assure you that the government of Canada is there to respond to this uh, uh, consular uh, emergency that Canadians want there, and we will continue to do so. We're using best practices. Like I said, you need to tailor the response with the need of the people. We have now 160 Canadians who need consular assistance. We're in touch with them. We're assessing their needs. I would say we're responding appropriately. We have a plane secured like the other nations, and now we're working like the international community to get the landing permission and obviously the logistics. Who is, who is, who is, who is, who is And if I could just add to that, I think what's important to remember is at the beginning of this, we didn't actually have a fulsome picture of who was in the region because so many people were not registered. So we actually didn't have a sense of what uh, the number of Canadians from our particular side of the records. And so I think the, uh, the work that we've been doing to make sure that people know that they need to register and that they need to reach out so that we can actually find them has been, uh, uh, has directly resulted in the rise of numbers that are people. Who, who, is, who, is, who, is going to, who is going to pay? Uh, listen, the first and foremost thing now is to help Canadians. Yeah. With so respect to the cost, I would say we, we've so not, we've not uh, spent much time on that yet. The focus now is offering the consular assistance to every Canadian who needs that. We'll get back to you with the details.
Well, let's drill down now on the Canadian government's response to the coronavirus outbreak and its efforts to help those Canadians that are stranded in China. With me from the House of Commons tonight, I'm joined by two members of Parliament. Rob Oliphant is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and Don Davies is the health critic for the uh, New Democrats. We invited the Conservatives as well. Their uh, members are in a committee meeting. They were unable to pull somebody out to have this conversation. So we'll proceed with uh, examining the government's response here with my two guests who joined me from the foyer of the House. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here, first of all. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Davies, let me start with you, because we've, we've heard at uh, some length now from the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Minister of Health uh, about the Canadian response, uh, efforts to evacuate about 160 Canadians so far from China. The government says it now has secured a plane and says it's at the forefront of the country is trying to move quickly to help stranded citizens. What's your assessment of the government's response so far? Well, they're not at the forefront at all. And in fact, last night I, I raised this issue of why Canada was slow to send a plane when we heard that the U.S. had done. And I specifically mentioned Japan, the U.K. and France were well advanced uh, where Canada was. And I was told last night by Mr. Oliphant that it was just the U.S. Well, today we see that Japan is sending planes, the EU is sending planes, France is sending planes. And I was just in committee where I was asking uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Theresa Tam, Canada's chief medical officer, what the what the plan is for that plane? You know, do we have um, quarantine areas? Are people going to be quarantined on the China side, on this side? When's the plane going to leave? And she couldn't tell us a single detail. So I don't think that speaks to a country that's uh, leading the pack. Mr. Oliphant, uh, your government has secured a plane, but now it it says it needs permission from the Chinese to get in there and land and pick up those Canadians. How quickly should we expect that to happen? And how come the Americans and the Japanese have already been able to get their people out? Uh, we, we are taking every step absolutely necessary and critical to help the 160 Canadians who have requested consular uh, services. Uh, this is a complex situation, and actually I don't think it's a time for partisan politics at all. We're dealing with a couple of different things. We're dealing with the stopping the spread of a virus. We're dealing with Canadians who are seeking uh, help from their government. And we're ensuring the safety of all Canadians with respect to the spread of this virus. Uh, we have, as always, taken expert advice. We have acted quickly to get a chartered airplane. That it, we're in the final. We have laws in Canada about getting a chartered airplane and, and enter, entertaining a, a contract with them. The final uh, details are being worked out right now. We think by probably February 1st, February 2nd, we'll be able to do that. But it's actually still in, in negotiation with the Chinese right. uh, government. The Chinese government has absolute responsibility and right uh, with respect to who comes in and leaves their country. Right. This but, is but a it's, quarantined. I, I I understand, but I'm like leaving aside suggestions of partisan politics. There, some Canadians who are stranded over there have complained I, about. I, hang on, have complained about the, the the lack of response from the Canadian government to some of their concerns. Uh, I haven't and, heard one of those, by the way. Maybe well, there's been have, all kinds of media reports uh, from people saying they've been trying to reach embassies and being told to here's a map of a hospital to go to. Or, this 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 whole area is under quarantine. You cannot move from village to village. All the Canadians are not in one place. We are taking every step to ascertain where they are. Many of them weren't registered. We have now got the largest number of registrations has gone, it's gone from 80 some to 250. We know where they are. We're engaged but, with them. Okay. But, is that, but is there something more complicated in Canada about leasing a charter aircraft uh, to do this than it is in the US it, or Japan? So the Americans have evacuated their consular officials. This, this, this is a, these are, we're talking apples and oranges here right now. Canada is doing everything they can do and I would argue is leading the pack internationally in this area. We are 
we have learned from previous encounters such as SARS, we are making sure that we act carefully, cautiously, scientifically, based on evidence, making sure that everything is done appropriately. The, the medical officers of health in our provinces and territories are engaged. Uh, our, our federal government, the, the Public Health Agency of Canada, is engaged. We are doing what they suggest we should do, medical professionals finding ways to ensure that we protect Canadians who are in China, right. to make sure that we protect Canadians' health who are in Canada, and stop this virus okay, from Davies, spreading around the world. Mr. Davies, what's your response to that? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's inconsistent with the evidence we just heard for the last hour and a half from uh, Theresa Tam. I mean, I, I specifically asked Dr. Tam questions. When is the plane leaving? Um, again, um, how are we going to test Canadians but, but, but in to, China? To Mr. Al to Mr. Oliphant's point, we, I guess the plane can't leave till it gets clearance from China, well, course, the Chinese well, officials to say, okay, you can come to China. Well, that's true. Well, again, the Americans have got, have got clearance, albeit maybe for their consular officials, and Japan has done it, and I understand the EU is sending a plane as well. Look, it's, it, it's not a race here. Um, but it's not partisan for the opposition to start questioning the government on whether they're taking every conceivable action and if they're moving quick enough. Now, we heard some very disturbing numbers from Dr. Theresa Tam. There are now 6,000 diagnosed cases of the coronavirus right. in, in China. And, and over 130 and deaths. 133 deaths. Uh, there's a 20% uh, rate of progression to serious illness as designed by the, Chinese, by the Chinese. And it's not just Wuhan anymore. There's a, a second province that uh, uh, this virus has spread to in China. And we even heard some... So, what, what's the, so what's the message of concern in that for Canada? Well, what, the, what, how should that influence our response? Well, the message is that the problem is growing in China and that there are Canadians in China that I think need a quicker response from the government and more details. Uh, sure, surely the government should be able to tell us uh, by now when is the plane going and what's the plan for quarantine of these people. Are they going to have to stay in quarantine for 14 days? Days on the China side, or they're going to be quarantined in Canada. How do we make sure that everybody getting on that plane is not incubating the virus and infecting other people? Okay. There are serious questions here that are, remain unanswered because we just asked those questions to Dr. Theresa Tam and she couldn't give the health committee those answers. Right. Is it, is it uh, well, Mr. Oliphant, let me ask you, is it unreasonable to think there are answers to those questions at this point? I would say Dr. Theresa Tam is a much bigger expert than I am. I'm not a physician. Uh, I, I, I think that we need to listen to our physicians. We need to listen to public health officials who actually know what they're talking about. We are taking this, it's a very fluid situation. We will protect the health of Canadians. We need to ascertain the health of those 160 Canadians. We don't know. We haven't been able to be in touch with them yet because each of the areas that they are in is quarantined one from the other. The Chinese are doing what they feel they need to do to stop the spread of this but virus. What, what, We're working together with them, and we will ensure that that virus is stopped the best we can. To Mr. To Mr. Davies' point, uh, well, well, to both of you, what, what should be, and presumably those options, and it sounded like in the conversations with the ministers today, that. Uh, they are, everything might be on the table here because so, so, much, is, on the table. so much is unknown. And that includes, on the table. That, that includes perhaps bringing those Canadians back when you finally do get them back and could they be quarantined at a military base or we, some off-site place till we know they're well? We want to be nimble. The reality is it's a situation that is constantly changing. The virus might even change. So we want to make sure that we have everything that is being done appropriately. We don't know the answers to those questions yet until we find out who the 160 people are, what their health state is, make sure that we have the appropriate screening processes that will keep both them healthy and other Canadians safe. We, we have got 
And it's not a simple, fact, a simple task to get an airplane that is chartered, that has a crew that will go into a quarantined area, and make sure that you've got uh, a responsible diplomatic relationship with China, making sure that we're honoring their desire to keep this quarantine, this, this virus, in as much check as possible. Right. Mr. Davies, do you think... No, the, do you no think silver in, bullet on do you, this. Do you think... Uh, uh, people have talked about this. I, I'm curious what you think about uh, the role that the, the tense diplomatic relationship Canada now enjoys with China, and maybe enjoy is not the right word, but uh, this time that we are passing through with the Chinese in terms of the diplomatic relationship, do you believe that complicates this situation for Canada in terms of trying to get those Canadians out? Well, I don't think it helps. Um, uh, obviously, uh, you know, the healthier diplomatic relations are, the less strained they are, um, probably the, the more cooperative uh, uh, countries are with one another. Uh, I don't ha have any evidence or suggestion that that's playing a role in this case, but um, it's a valid question to ask. You know, I, I, I want to say there's, I, 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 I think the government has done a fairly good job and certainly want to give credit to the Public Health Agency and, and Dr. Teresa Tam for her reaction in this matter. I think, I think things have, have gone very well up to now, but my sense is that this is going to break bigger. And I think that we've maybe been a little bit lackadaisical on it. We just heard some evidence, for But instance, what more would we be doing? Well, if I'll give you an example. Here. I'll give you an example. We have passengers coming off international planes that are coming into the international area, and before they talk to an officer about where they've been or whether they've been sick, they're all entering their information on those screens. They're in that. We've all been at yes. them if we travel, those and kiosk queues exactly. where everybody's lined up. And now we're finding that the transmission of the coronavirus could happen because the virus, we just heard from Dr. Teresa Tam, can live for up to a few hours on surfaces. So th there's maybe something nobody anticipated, but people coming off a plane who are sick may be, may be transmitting the virus onto those screens. Are we anticipating that? Are we taking steps to make sure that, that, that uh, that's not transmitting the, the virus before they get and self-report? Right. So I think there's some important questions. As, as Rob says, this is a fluid situation, um, but I, I think we have to take this very seriously. Let me finish with you, Mr. Oliphant, just on this, this idea of the relationship. With, is it complicated by the status of the relationship with China now? Uh, what I have been told and what I understand is that that is not at all of a concern in this particular case, that uh, Chinese officials have been cooperating with Canadian officials. We recognize that there are things that are beyond politics. There are things that are about human health. Uh, we want to do everything we can to assist China. We have made uh, offerings of, of any medical assistance, equipment, or anything that they uh, they might need from us. We have offered that. We're waiting to hear from them on that. Uh, they have been uh, forthcoming in their, their communication with us. They recognize this is an international crisis. It is housed in their territory, but they're aware of this. Uh, so far, I have seen no evidence whatsoever of our strain in diplomatic relations, which is real, uh, affecting this issue, which is, for me, beyond politics, it's about keeping Canadians and Chinese and the world okay. safe and trying right. to find the best way to do that. All right, gentlemen, uh, thank you for your time tonight. And for viewers who are watching, uh, we uh, did invite a conservative representative to join us in our conversation. They were unable to make it. Uh, but uh, I do appreciate the conversation we've had with the two of you, and we'll talk again. Take care. Thank Thanks, you, Peter.
Well, the House of Commons has passed the motion today required to kickstart the ratification process for the new NAFTA, the new trade deal between Canada, the U.S. and Mexico, on a day when the U.S. president signed it into law and had lots to say about Canada. In a moment, we'll look at the latest developments and whether the Canadian government will get speedy approval from Parliament, as it hopes for. But first, some details on the new deal. The new NAFTA, or CUSMA, was originally signed in November 2018, but changes were made following the U.S. midterms with a Democrat-controlled House of Representatives. On December 10, 2019, Canada, the United States, and Mexico signed a protocol of amendment, making changes to the original deal. Parties will no longer be able to block the establishment of a dispute settlement panel. Changes also include removing the consultative role of the CUSMA Free Trade Commission. On labor, the amendments include stricter measures to ensure Mexico commits to reforming its labor laws and practices. Additionally, a requirement was introduced that 70% of a motor vehicle's steel and aluminum must be melted and poured in North America to be considered duty-free. Stricter amendments were also implemented for the environment, expanding the reach, monitoring, and enforcement of the agreement. The amendments also now classify environmental disputes as a matter affecting trade and investment. Finally, amendments saw the removal of a clause from the 2018 NAFTA text that required changes to laws on biologics protection. The New Deal allows greater access to Canada's supply-managed poultry, egg and dairy industries. It provides protections for Canadian newspapers and TV stations from U.S. takeovers. It also caps Canadian auto exports to the U.S. Well, CPAC's Martin Stringer has been tracking the latest on the ratification of Kuzma and the process as it uh, will unfold here in Canada. So, Martin, take us through the latest. Where are things now in the process? Okay, well, Peter, let's start with Washington, where after having been passed by Congress today, President Donald Trump signed it into law. Here's what he had to say at the signing ceremony at the White House. In addition to calling it a wonderful historical agreement, Donald Trump also couldn't resist boasting that he'd gotten significant concessions from Canada. This agreement is a tremendous breakthrough for American agriculture. Canada will finally provide greater access for American dairy. Canada's opening up. It will grow annual exports to our neighbors by an estimated $315 million. Poultry exports to Canada are expected to rise by at least 50 percent, and egg export could increase by 500 where is the Canadian folks? Where are they? You guys did a good job on us before this deal, I'll tell you. That's, Canada was very tough, but they're good. They're our friends, so we appreciate it. It's not always, it is always nice to be appreciated. But you know, I notice how he points out there that the Canadians did a good deal uh, on the Americans before this deal. So and there he was crowing about all the concessions he thinks the Americans yeah. uh, got in the process. Uh, how did that kind of language go over in the continuing debate here in Canada? Well, Peter, that kind of language really in Washington had uh, the Conservatives here in Ottawa in the House of Commons renewing their attack that Canada, they say, had probably given up too much to, to get the deal. And they were calling for more information on the economic impact of Kuzma. Mr. Speaker, it's been 48 days since we asked for the Liberal government to provide the economic impact analysis of the new NAFTA. There are clearly concerns from the number of key sectors, including dairy and aluminum. We have asked the Prime Minister to provide these documents so we can do our job. 
When will the Prime Minister provide these documents, or are you trying to hide something? Yeah. Yeah. The reality is, Mr. Speaker, uh, that from the very beginning, uh, we offered full briefings and information, not just to the leaders of the opposition parties, uh, but to their critics as well. We will ensure that all information that they require to uh, make the right decision for their constituencies and for Canada is uh, given to them. We know that this is an extremely important achievement for Canada to have secured trade with, uh, North America, with, uh, within the North American market. We will continue to work with all members in this House to ensure that we can move forward Except properly. Up. All right, uh, Martin, the opposition parties clear, st still clearly have questions about this, but let's make no mistake about it. This thing is moving forward, uh, even above, uh, in spite of some of those objections. So after yeah. question period, it, this process passed another hurdle. What happened? Well, that's right. In the House of Commons, the MPs voted uh, in favour of a Ways and Means motion. Now, the motion passed with 290 MPs voting for and 28 voting against. The Bloc Québécois MPs were the, those who voted against the motion. Now, passing the motion, though, paved the way for the introduction of the legislation to implement Kuzma, or the new agreement. And that was tabled today by Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland. Now, why did the Bloc uh, vote against the Ways and Means motion, right. and what can might that mean, you might ask? Sure. Well, basically, what the Bloc is saying is that it's representing groups, including workers in the aluminum sector, who are concerned because there aren't as many guarantees in the trade deal for aluminum content in the manufacture of automobiles compared to the guarantees that are in the accord for North American steel content. As it turns out, though, aluminum workers and their representatives from their communities in Quebec, the Saguenay region, today met with uh, Minister Freeland on Parliament Hill. They came out of that meeting saying that they were pleased with her reassurances that Canada, the U.S. and Mexico would monitor the auto sector and prevent the dumping of cheap aluminum from outside of North America. Here is the mayor of Saguenay. I think the, uh, the meeting was good. Now everyone is concerned. She understands that we are concerned, but she told us that she would keep on working and also to um, um, reassure <laughs> Everybody that uh, what's the uh, what's the aluminum industry uh, is bringing us for jobs and for investment will keep on going for Quebec and for Canada. Now, ironically, the Bloc leader and his MPs say they aren't as convinced as those social groups and local groups from the Saguenay. They say, the MPs, uh, that they want further guarantees from the government before they vote from, for the new NAFTA, and that is why they voted against the Ways and Means motion. But uh, the Bloc leader, Yves-François Planchette, says they are pro-free pro trade and they are inclined to support the deal. And, of course, take into account that uh, the Quebec Premier, uh, François Legault, has called for fast passage of the legislation. All right, Martin, what about the other parties in the House? Okay. Well, there's a lot of movement. The Conservatives say they will probably end up supporting Kuzma and uh, the implementation bill, and their support more or less guarantees its passage. But they, like the Bloc Québécois, are also, uh, they like to see more guarantees to address concerns about aluminum. The three-member Green Caucus made news today. They came out and said they will vote in favour of the NAFTA implementation legislation. Absolutely. We, 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 as I said, it's not a choice between a perfect world of trade agreements that prioritize the environment. This is a choice between NAFTA, as it was originally passed, and this new version. The new version is far superior to the old version, and that's what we're voting on. So the three Greens are going to vote for it. Now the only real question here seems to be what the NDP caucus will do. They aren't indicating clearly, aside from saying that they want more study and they want wider consultation at committee. 
Well, we haven't even seen the enabling legislation, so I think it's appropriate to wait until we see the legislation before we make a decision. Certainly, um, we need time. Yeah, we've seen the deal, but uh, the devil is always in the details, particularly with complex trade agreements. And so the legislation is going to enact that deal in particular ways, and we want an opportunity to uh, look at that. I also think that for Canadians who are wondering about the deal, uh, you know, the committee process is an opportunity for Canadians to hear directly from expert witnesses that are going to come, hopefully from various sectors, if we get the cooperation of the government on that. So it's not just an opportunity for parliamentarians to learn about it, but it's an opportunity for Canadians to be able to understand that better as you guys uh, do your good work and cover those uh, proceedings. So I think that's an important part of the process and we shouldn't be jumping to any conclusions. So as we watch this unfold, Martin, the, the context of this, of course, is that the government had said, you know, it made an appeal uh, even before the House came back this week to opposition parties to look, don't hold this up. There's been enough uncertainty. The only uncertainty left lies now in the hands of parliamentarians. Let's yeah. get this thing passed. Yeah. Let's move it along. Not sure that the opposition parties are on the same speedy timetable, but I guess we'll see. So what does it look like now as this timetable unfolds? Well, the timetable is very interesting because the bill goes to second reading in the House as early as tomorrow, but there has been no time set yet for how long the second reading debate will take place before a vote to send the bill to the International Trade Committee. As for how long the hearings at committee will take, well, they can be several weeks, it could be even more. And then, of course, once it's passed committee, comes back for a third reading vote, uh, it goes to the much more independent and unpredictable Senate. And Peter, last note, once Canada becomes the last country to ratify Kuzma whenever it happens, uh, the agreement doesn't come into effect until the first day of the third month after Canada has ratified the deal. So right. it's a long process. And that's the same for everybody, all, all yeah. the partners in it, but the, the others have gone through the legislative process. They're much further ahead than we are at this point. So it sounds to me like at least a matter of weeks, perhaps months before uh, this gets through the legislative process. And don't forget the Senate. All right, thanks, Martin. You're welcome. Well, a couple of developments today in the race for the leadership of the Conservative Party. Ontario Conservative MP Michael Chong, who had been thinking about a run for the leadership, has now uh, decided uh, he has ruled out a run for the job, making that announcement today. And today the race has its first declared candidate from Western Canada. Alberta businessman Rick Peterson, who finished 12th out of 14 candidates in the last Conservative leadership race in 2017, announced today he's running again with a promise to shake up the race. His promises include a flat income tax rate and ripping up environmental legislation brought in by the Liberals. He's president of investment company Peterson Capital, and he joins me now from Edmonton. Rick Peterson, uh, thanks for being with me. Uh, good to see you again. Uh, it's been a while since we had a chance uh, to chat, but it's been a couple of years since we had a Conservative leadership race, so you're back. But let me, let me cut right to the chase here, because I know that's what some people will be saying. Why does a guy who finished in 12th place in the last leadership race with less than 1% of the vote like his chances this time around? You know, Peter, uh, uh, the news that you just announced on uh, Michael Chong is really too bad because Michael's got a lot to add. And, uh, finishing at the bottom half of the uh, leadership race in 2017, I actually had a lot of good company. There were some very strong conservatives who, because of the size of the field that we had, there were probably uh, uh, people less than 5%. 6% who are some very good, strong candidates with good good ideas. Chris Alexander, mm. Andrew Saxton, I thought, had a great, uh, you know, economic plan. Uh, Stephen Blaney and, and, you know, Michael finished higher than I did. But, right. is, it, but is that what you, you think makes it different this time? Just do you think it might be a smaller field? Well, no, I'm just going to back up again. A better question would be what has changed this year in terms of the, of the race? The race is probably going to be five or six different people. But the big thing is that Michael and I, 
and maybe one or two others were really running policy-focused campaigns in 2017. Didn't get a lot of airtime. In 2020, uh, if you look at the platform that I took out this morning, the membership and the Canadian public is really looking for ideas that are going to move the party and the needle for Canada. Uh, Rick Peterson, why do you think the race needs a, a Western-based uh, candidate? Uh, if you look at it, the last two leaders, Stephen Harper, Andrew Scheer, and the interim leader, Ron Ambrose, they were all from the West. There are lots of Western MPs in the caucus. Uh, some might suggest the party needs someone from outside the West this time to build the party. Is this a Western candidacy you're offering here, uh, and is that why you're in? There's a strong, strong sentiment in Western Canada that we really need to be sure that concerns of Western Canada are reflected in our party and in government when we form a government next time. Uh, Ronna Ambrose, a lot of us in Western Canada were hoping she was going to run, but when it became apparent that Ronna decided to take a different path, my phone started to light up with calls from people who worked with me in the previous campaigns and a um, little organization, Peter, that I helped start two years ago called Suits and Boots, and the suits are industry people, capital markets people, and boots are resource sector people across Canada. Uh, called an email and said, hey, we need a Western candidate. So it's basically we need to make sure that we have a grassroots representation from Western Canada in this race and a race from a Western Canadian who is fluently bilingual. And I'm the only candidate who's fluently bilingual so far. And with some good, strong policy ideas. I haven't heard any policy ideas from Aaron or Peter so far. So our candidate, our campaign launch this morning, Peter, uh, responded very clearly and succinctly as to where we stand on key issues facing the party. Okay, let's 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 and go through if I can. Let's go through a couple of them. I touched yeah, on some of them in sure. the introduction. Where where are you on a carbon tax? Tax the large emitters. In other words, put carbon pricing on large emitters, like we have here in Alberta. The provincial government has called a technology innovation uh, uh, platform, which actually puts a carbon pricing mechanism on the large emitters that are producing GHG emissions. But we're axed the tax on individuals and small business who have very little measurable impact and who are, are uh, in terms of the federal carbon tax, not major players. So yes, as a conservative, Peter, as a conservative, I'm interested in pricing carbon. And the large emitters are going to come under a regime that is very similar to the one we have in Alberta. All right. You talked about taxation as well today. And uh, as I recall, when you and I talked a couple of years ago in the last race, uh, I think you had the same platform when it comes to taxation, a flat income tax rate of 15% and uh, cutting corporate taxes. Uh, tell me about that. Three years ago, Peter, uh, in my campaign uh, appearances, I was talking about Donald Trump's impending tax cuts and the fact that in Canada we would have to make up ground because the economic growth that would result from that in the U.S. would be very phenomenal. Look what happened. Look at the job growth. Look at the wage growth. Look at the productivity. Um, look at the job creation in the U.S. in the last two years. The S&P 500, the stock market's up four times. Canadian have fallen behind. The average Canadian, from what I read, Peter, is uh, $500 away from not making the end of the month. How, how can that happen? So my tax cuts are designed to stimulate the economy, create jobs. Companies that no longer pay corporate income tax will pay dividends, they'll invest, they'll expand, they'll hire. Individuals will have less money coming out of their pocket and they can use to consume and to buy and to be you know, more active in the economy. Right. So tax cuts, and I'm just going to finish it, if you have to let me finish yep. this, tax cuts are not designed just to be, you know, making, making it easier for people to just go out and spend money. It's to stimulate the economy. It's to grow the economy. It's to create jobs. Okay, so l let me ask you, I mean, you talk about tax cuts, you'd rip up Bill C-48, the oil tanker bill, Bill C-69, yep. the, uh, the new environmental assessment rules. Uh, you'd focus no, on... No, 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 no. 
no, no, rip up C48. Yeah. But finish off the work oh. on C69. Finish off the work on C69. So we rewrite it in a way that takes away political interference in okay, the environmental fair, assessment process. Fair okay? enough. Let's let's make sure we got your your position straight. I appreciate that. Uh, you'd Thank focus you. on carbon pricing on big emitters, but not individuals. Protect the rights of That's gun right. owners. Um, yeah. I'm curious. How, how do you think that kind of policy uh, offering sets you apart from a Peter McKay or an Aaron O'Toole or a Marilyn Gladue? They seem like standard conservative uh, policies and principles. Uh, can you name me three policies that you've heard from those people, Peter, in the last week? Well, we've heard them talk about writ, writ large. They haven't actually come out with spe specific policies yeah. to that extent, but they're tax fighters. Uh, they're, they're carbon pricing fighters. They're, they're all, they're, they're, they want to protect gun owners, rightful gun owners, the same kinds of things you're talking about. How do you distinguish you from them? Well, you know what? When I see policy ideas coming from them, Peter, happy to address that. So far, I've seen nothing. Okay, the, the race now is in its early days yet, uh, but it's going to happen quickly. It's being framed as a battle between red Tories and true blue Tories. Uh, some would say Peter McKay on that red Tory side and perhaps Aaron O'Toole on the true blue Tory. What, what are you? I think that's an irrelevant question. I think that's an irrelevant debate. Red Tory, blue Tory, that's his story, Peter. That happened 15 years ago. The Canadians who we're addressing right now are the 25-year-old software programmer for Shopify. Do you think she knows what a red Tory is? Do you think she cares what a blue Tory is? What she wants to find out is she got the ability to use her talent, grow her contribution to the company, and to expand Canada. The big platform, Peter, in my platform is we want to make Canada. We want to make Canada the most bold place where jobs are created, where Creative destruction happens. Creative disruption happens where industry changes. Things happen. Why? Because of technology and people. So when we're talking about a Kenyan medical scientist, or we're talking about a researcher coming from the Philippines, do we ask them, "Are you a red Tory? Are you a blue Tory?" Where do you? They don't care. And until our party starts to talk about Canadians and the future of the Conservative Party. Uh, we're going to be stuck, and you know, Aaron and but, Peter. But you, quite frankly, but you don't think Peter, there's, Aaron, but you Aaron, don't think there's a discussion around around when th those are terms that we, you know, that, that people have watched politics in this country for a long time used to frame different kinds of factions and parties. But uh, do you not think there's an ongoing discussion in the Conservative Party on, for instance, social issues uh, that have divided the party on abortion, same-sex rights, and those members of the party who think that's not an issue and shouldn't be up for discussion, that it's all been settled. Where are you on that, and isn't that a, a line of distinction uh, between members of this party? Under my, under my leadership, the Conservative Party of Canada will not open the debate on abortion. Will you stop MPs in the backbench from trying to bring? Will you, will you stop MPs in the backbench from trying to bring forward those those issues uh, because they can do that through motions or private members' bills? Will you tell them, don't even try? I'm going to shut it down. Well, I got to tell you, Peter, you cannot shut it down. But I'm going to tell you something. Any MP who is looking at doing that has to face a couple of consequences. Number one, to be relegated to the back row, right up against the curtains. Number two, any MP that does that on behalf of the Conservative Party signals to us that he really or she would really prefer to be in a minority backbench government position. Do you really want to do that? And number three, what that person is doing is that person is going to find himself or herself a very small, irrelevant member of the caucus. So you have to take into account consequences for that. Everybody around the table is open and respectful to ideas. 
But when you're focused on moving the party and the country in a bold direction, you have to take into account this is a team, this is the focus of the team, and this is what we're going to okay. do. So I'm going to make it very clear, Peter, very clear that this will not happen under my leadership. All right, Rick Peterson, uh, into the announcing his candidacy today for the Conservative Party leadership. Uh, good to talk to you, and I know we'll talk again. So take care, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Peter. Well, Canadians spent hundreds of hours watching their favorite programs on TV or online, and the digital transformation has outpaced the rules that govern broadcasting and telecommunications in this country. Today, an expert panel appointed by the government issued its recommendations for regulatory reform, and that includes requiring the big streaming giants such as Netflix and Amazon Prime Video to pour some of their profits into Canadian programming and making them collect sales tax. In a moment, I'll speak with the chair of the expert panel about those recommendations. But first, a little more on what's in the report. The Broadcasting and Telecommunications Legislative Review Panel was set up by the government in 2018 to review laws surrounding the functions of Canadian media. Their study included reviews of the Broadcasting Act, the Telecommunications Act, and the Radio Communication Act to recommend ways of bringing Canada's decades-old communications laws into the digital age. Their report, Canada's Communications Future, Time to Act, contains 97 recommendations across four categories. The report recommends that the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission, known as the CRTC, change its name to the Canadian Communications Commission, with the power to oversee all media operating in Canada, including online services. The report also makes recommendations for streaming services such as Netflix and Amazon Prime. The report rejects a so-called Netflix tax for subscribers and advises that these companies be subject to sales taxes. It also recommends that the Telecommunications Act be amended to establish jurisdiction over any company offering electronic communication services in Canada, even if they're not based within the country. The report makes recommendations for Canada's public broadcasters, the CBC and Radio Canada, too. It recommends the broadcasters broaden their mandate across multiple platforms and media and move to a publicly funded ad-free model. The report also proposes safeguarding access to an open internet, ensuring net neutrality, and that universal broadband connection be protected in Canada's communications laws. Well, with me now is Janet Yale, the chair of the Broadcasting and Telecommunications Legislative Review Panel. Uh, Janet Yale, good to see you again. Uh, Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming me. to speak with me. Uh, a lot of people have been waiting to see these recommendations, and in particular, we're going to cover a lot of stuff in our 10 minutes or so together, but uh, how you propose to deal with the web giants such as Netflix and Amazon and Facebook when it comes to taxation and Canadian content. So l let's start there. What are you recommending for regulating these web giants, as we call it, and, and leveling the playing field? in Canada in terms of content and, and production and the contributions they make to this country? Well, we started from the premise that everybody that benefits from participating in the Canadian system, whether it's in terms of advertising revenues or subscription revenues, has to contribute. And right now, because of the exemption that applies to anything that's delivered online, none of the foreign streaming services or even domestic Mm -hmm. streaming services make a contribution. So we started from the principle of like-for-like like fairness and the notion that if you benefit from the system, you should contribute. So we've created the way for 
all of internet-based streaming services to be captured uh, within the broadcasting legislation. So explain how that will work. So the first thing is to recognize that we need them to come in under the act and we've created a registration regime, a very simple uh, registration requirement that all streaming services would have to do. And we've created three categories of service and said, you now, Canadian, foreign, whatever, have to fall within one of the three to be relevant. Curation, aggregation, and sharing. So if you think of companies like Netflix, uh, they, in our view, are more like CTV than they are like a cable company. They're curators because they acquire, they produce content that they then disseminate to consumers right. like us. Uh, and just like traditional broadcasters, they have spending obligations in our system. They have to invest in the production and discoverability of Canadian content on a percentage to be determined by the CRTC. Okay, um, there existing media companies in this country, content producers, you mentioned CTV and, and others, they're required to pay into funds to create Canadian content and set aside airtime for Canadian content. Um, would, would those streaming companies be required to do the same? So the programming services, generally speaking, don't put money into other funds. They, broadcasters right. will receive money from the Canada Media Fund traditionally. So what we're saying is like for like, just as all of the traditional uh, programming licensees have spending obligations and often exhibition requirements or discoverability requirements, so too would services like Netflix, uh, like Prime TV and so on. So it's really a like for like. We recognize that the existing broadcasters have a lot of obligations. Mm -hmm. And we've also recommended that the CRTC look at lightening their load so that on a like for like, for like basis, uh, they would be able to compete effectively with the foreign streaming services. Well, that, that was, let's stay with this for just a bit. That, that was, you, know, you hear the complaint uh, from traditional broadcasters, if I can put it that way in this country, that you know the, broad, the field needs to be leveled. Do you think this does it? We do. We think, well, don't forget, our job was legislative and regulatory right. reform, not to make the actual policy determinations that would be made by the CRTC. This provides the framework And think, this to do is that. about that legislative framework and giving the CRTC the regulatory tools they need to bring that into effect. We're very conscious. And so, for example, for broadcasters, one of the recommendations we've made uh, is that they should be able to do uh, productions through in-house or affiliated production companies rather than have to go through the Canada Media Fund uh, to contract uh, through license fees mm -hmm. with independent producers. So we are trying to recognize that business models are changing and the regulatory framework has to be sufficiently f flexible that the various undertakings can grow and thrive and change. Did you consider a tax on these companies? Uh, what we call it, it would be, a, it would be a, in effect a consumption tax. I think it would be on, on subscriptions and so on and that, that that money collected would then be put into the funds for Canadian content. Um, obviously all options were considered. I think at the end of the day we felt very importantly that it's important to manage prices to consumers and so we did not support putting a tax uh, on companies like these foreign streaming services and we recognize that they spend a lot of money every year in Canada on productions, but the, the problem with those service productions, which are terrific, they generate jobs, they're good for the economy, but they don't qualify as Canadian content. We're saying a percentage of that program budget that they're spending in Canada has to count as Canadian in the sense that key creative positions must be held 
by Canadians as an important contribution to Canadian culture. I, that's an important distinction, I think, isn't it? I mean, uh, um, because they make the case that, look, we're doing lots of stuff in Canada, but talk to me a little bit more about the, the significance of that difference. It's not just that you might produce something in this country. Are you saying that it, yeah, the key people, the key creative people have to be Canadian, but it, does the content also have to be about Canada? Well, I mean, I think that'll be, again, for the CRTC to decide. There are Canadian content requirements. The fact that they spend a lot of money in Canada today taking advantage of the Canadian dollar and the tax credits that exist is terrific. It's great for the economy. But from a cultural perspective, we want to make sure that there are Canadian stories and Canadian perspectives. And the only way to have that is if the productions um, meet the Canadian content requirements. You've used the term a couple of times now, and I want you to elaborate on it for the audience. Discoverability. Uh, when you talk about Canadian content and the discoverability of Canadian content, what do you mean? Well, it's one thing to produce great Canadian content. It's another thing for people to be able to find it. So how do we, in a world of streaming services, non-linear, the catalog is there, ensure that if Netflix has a range of wonderful Canadian content that we need to know about that it. you need to know about it and so is how how prominent do they make it on the home screens how do they deal with the algorithms so that those choices are included in the ones that are pushed to you so how do we think about making sure that they promote and ensure that Canadians that want those choices are able to find them. Let's talk a little bit about the, the CBC, the, the National Public Broadcaster. You've got some recommendations for their role too. And one of the things that struck me is you, you, you think they can be a, a, a more robust check against misinformation in the years ahead. How do you see that happening? Well, we certainly recognize that um, today there's a lot of concerns about misinformation and fake news. And so one of the principles that we've uh, articulated in the report is that the best protection against that is accurate, trusted, and reliable sources of news. Mm -hmm. And the role of the public broadcaster as a national media institution in relation to news is one that we think should be expanded so that they can be properly funded to do local, regional, national news, as well as providing a Canadian perspective on international news. And you say they ought to be able to do it without advertising, like a phasing out advertising over a five-year period starting in the in the news divisions at, at, at CBC. Uh, I think right now they get somewhere a little over $1.1 uh, as a parliamentary appropriation. Are you suggesting the CBC needs more money? Get out of advertising, but you need more money from uh, the Parliament of Canada to run it. We haven't um, quantified exactly what the parliamentary appropriation should be. What we have said is two things. One is they need stable long-term funding so that they have certainty. Related to that, that there should be an agreement between CBC Radio-Canada and the government, government of Canada as to what that mandate should be and then be resourced to achieve that mandate. Um, and that is certainly a problem right now because we believe they're not really set up to fulfill that national cultural uh, and media and news role. The other thing I would say is that if you look at the OECD countries, CBC Radio Canada on a dollars per capita basis is at the bottom of the list for national media institutions. So it's hard to say how much money it would take to do a great job, but we think that's a conversation that has to happen between the CBC and the federal okay, government. Okay, a couple of things to, uh, we should, you know, uh, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, it's the, the uh, and I am. So I like reading this kind of stuff. But I, you, you spend a fair bit of time on, on 
the whole issue of access and, and broadband in this country. And, and sure, uh, successive governments have tried to push it along and, and tried to, uh, to, to get, but there's still lots, lots of the parts of the country where we're, we're not doing very well at that. What, what does your report say about the need to expand broadband and the role of government in that? Well, one of the fundamental things we uh, talk about in the report is the user perspective. And we say everyone, no matter where you live in Canada, deserves to have a connected life. Because at this point, broadband connectivity is really a need to do. It's a necessity. It's not a luxury anymore. And so we say where there isn't, um, where the private sector is not rolling out broadband at a, at a rapid enough pace, the government needs to step in and do that. And so we've called on them to accelerate the rollout of broadband connectivity in rural and remote regions, as well as in indigenous communities, and to do that by 2030. It's about 10% of the population that isn't well covered today, mm -hmm. and the government has committed to doing that by 2030. We're encouraging them to do it faster. Uh, let's finish on this. I mean, a, a lot of this report is, is, is uh, if I can put it this way, the sort of mechanics and nuts and bolts of legislative bodies, for instance, the CRTC, renaming the CRTC and changing the way it operates, changing its responsibilities. But what I want to get from you to, to finish, uh, Janet Yale, is if, if, if all of these proposals are to be enacted, what is, what is the, 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 the broadcast and the, uh, and the web universe look like for me as a consumer five or eight years down the road? What was the purpose of this? I think what we wanted to do was to... Um, recognize this is an open global market. Canada is part of an open global marketplace now and people, we want to preserve the right of people living in Canada to a free and open internet and have the content they want from wherever they want. And in order to do that, they need broadband connectivity and they need affordable choices when it comes to their telecommunication services, whether it's wireless uh, or internet. And so we've made a lot of recommendations that are about ensuring that Canadians or people living in Canada, wherever they live and whoever they are, have affordable, barrier-free access to broadband connectivity so that they can participate fully in the digital economy and have the benefits of all of the uh, services and opportunities and content that are there on offer. All right, the government says it's planning to move as quickly as it can on these recommendations and always challenges, I suppose, in a minority parliament. We'll see how far down the road they get. Janet Yale, thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. So how is the report from the expert panel being received? Here's reaction on Parliament Hill today from the government side and the opposition side. Uh, we will have to do this quickly uh, because we have, as per my mandate letter, uh, we have committed to table a bill uh, on, on this in, in the first year of the mandate and we will follow through on, uh, on, on this promise. Our goal is, is simple, uh, to make the system more equitable uh, than it is right now. Uh, the technological changes that we have seen have made it so that our system doesn't work anymore. It's not fair to, to, to many of the distributors that, that, that are under a system where they are regulated, where, uh, as opposed to those other distributors uh, that are not. Uh, we, we deserve a system that, that is worth of the, the 21st century, so we will be moving very quickly. 
It's good that where there's a call to action, that there's a call to change, but I think what's being proposed and what the Liberals have in Minister Baines's mandate letter, uh, the the options that they're floating in this broader space, it's not going to change it, right? It's 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 fundamentally it's layering bureaucracy upon an already bureaucratic system, in a highly regulated space that an oligopoly has control over virtual virtually everything, and I think that Canadians have a choice to make: is this acceptable? Um, so, you know, while we welcome the report from the perspective of it being a call and an impetus to change, we are questioning the best way to have that change occur, and that we aren't supportive of just continuing with the overall regulatory framework. Well, that's all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the cable public affairs channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next time.